Wow, what an honor to come and be a part of the fellowship of the kingdom of God here at 2nd and Jackson Street, where we are a team. And that's what I've been preaching about for like three weeks is this team that God has called us to be because there were things that happened that Jesus was the only person that could do those things, like die on the cross, live a perfect life, pay a perfect sacrifice for the for the redemption of mankind. Nobody could have done that but him. But you know what? There were other parts of his earthly ministry that he choose, chose to do with other people. And he had a team of people, and we've been studying those disciples. And before I get started today, I've got a couple of announcements because I have a team member that come home. See, we share our lives with, with a, a congregation of people, and sharing your life, sometimes you, they start out as kids, and then they turn into teenagers, and then they turn into men, and then they go become youth pastors, and then they move to North Carolina, and then they come back home from time to time, and we've got the blessing today of Pastor Clinton Rogers, his wife Adrian, and their little baby Gray is with us today. Welcome home. It's exciting to see all of the, um, the family coming together. And we have an opportunity today to, you know, we started this series out with a guy named Peter. You know, he was that guy that fell prey to his flesh a lot of times, and he wasn't perfect, and he would make statements that he couldn't quite always back up, and he made a promise to go to, with Jesus even unto death, and Jesus told him that before the morning happens, you're going to deny that you even knew me. He thought that was absolutely impossible, but you know what? He failed. But in the midst of that failure, he learned some things that, that allowed him to once again be included, that God didn't change his mind about him because he failed. How many of us are happy that when we fell after we got saved and we fell short of the glory of God, that he didn't give up on us and didn't change his mind about us? Can somebody say amen? Of course. Now, we're going to be celebrating that type of a God next week when we have our worship night. So put that on your calendars. Next Saturday night, they're going to be doing a, a live recording, and they want you to be a part of it. And I'm excited about our worship team and them leading us into the presence of the Lord. But after Peter, we moved to uh, um, Andrew, his brother. And Andrew wasn't quite as popular as Peter. He never really, Scripture never really talks about him preaching a sermon. It talks about him connecting people to Christ. He's actually the one that connected his brother, the famous preacher. He, he actually connected Peter to Jesus. Then in John chapter 12, we find out that Andrew's connecting the Greeks to Jesus. And then there's this famous story about Jesus taking a little boy and his bag lunch and taking fish and loaves and breaking them and feeding 5,000 men, not counting the women and children. You know who brought the little boy to Jesus? Andrew. And last Sunday in first service, three people got saved. At second service, 14 people got saved. So we connected 17 people to the knowledge of Christ being their Savior last Sunday. Well, this week, we're going to talk about the other set of brothers, this James and John, those, those two guys. We're going to really focus on the life of James today, and we're going to talk about John next week. But can you imagine being that guy that stirs the pot? You know, James is, has a, a reputation of stirring the pot. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to talk about, I want you to look at your neighbor and say, do you, sir, do you stir the pot? 
Let's pray. Father, I ask you for the anointing of the Holy Spirit that allows us to come into your house to fellowship with the authority and the authenticity of your word. And God, just like we can relate to Peter, we're not perfect. And just like we hope to relate to Andrew with connecting more and more people to you, today we're going to find a man that needs transformation. He's a good man with good intentions, but sometimes those good intentions get in the way. And so, Father, I ask you to let us see ourselves in the life of James and let us see the power of your transformation in the life of James that, Father, that we can be more like you through the anointing and the empowerment of God the Holy Spirit. And I give you the praise, honor, and glory in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Well, let's start about some historical facts about James. Almost every single time James and John are mentioned in Scripture... Almost every single time it's accompanied by the phrase, they are the sons of Zebedee. And so that means and leads us to believe that Zebedee had influence in the region, that Scripture wanted to point out that these were men from a family that had influence. Now, historians and theologians, they differ on how Zebedee gets this influence. Half of them believe it's because he's a successful businessman, he's a successful fisherman, and he has started this fishing business, and he has uh, acquired some wealth, and that wealth brought influence. The other half half of the theologians and historians believe that Zebedee was a Levite. And what that simply means is from the tribe that they selected the priest, that Levite was, uh, that Zebedee was a Levite and he was a descendant, a family relative of the high priest. And because of his relationship with the priesthood and the high priest, it garnered him influence from being from the tribe of Levite It didn't matter. Either way, we know this is a man of influence and James is his eldest son. Now, James has some personality um, situations. He is zealous, thunderous, passionate, and fervent. But James is one of the big three, even though he very rarely, if any time, preaches a sermon in Scripture. He gets invited to places others are not. See, we want Jesus to be equitable, that everybody gets the same. Well, he is equitable in love. That means that he loves, he's no respecter of persons. He loves everybody the same. But there's different responsibilities that I have and you have. And in fellowship, when we learn, how many of us have more than one child? Say amen. Yeah, you don't treat them exactly the same because they have different giftings that sometimes it's based upon the responsibility or the gifting of your children that you would, you know, for, my, for example, my son Joshua, he would love to, to uh, you know, a night with me or a day with me and, it, uh, you know, would be something like going out on the boat. My son David, he wants to go to a concert. He don't mind the boat, but if he has his choice, he wants to go You know, me and him uh, last Christmas got to see one of the greatest guitarists in the world play the guitar, and I had just as much fun thinking that, man, that guy's good, but the guy sitting next to me is just as good as him. And so sometimes we want Jesus to treat everybody the same, but he doesn't, even in his team of disciples. Do you know that James is one that we consider to be one of the big three, the Peter, James, and John? Do you know that only Peter, James, and John were in the room when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead? You know that they were a part of an elect small group that got to go to the mountaintop to see the transfiguration. 
And do you know what? On the last night of Jesus' earthly ministry where he has the Last Supper and he goes to a garden called Gethsemane to pray, do you know the 11 disciples that were following him to the garden, eight of them stayed in one place and three of them got to go a little further in the garden, closer to Jesus when he prayed? Guess who they were? Peter, James, John. James is this guy that has a personality like he don't mind stirring the pot. And it isn't always a righteous stir of the pot. Sometimes he just does stuff just to make people mad. Anybody ever done that? Say amen. I use this example. Many of you saw my mom. My mom's got this habit now of posting everything on Facebook. And my mom's love language is acts of service. So to this day, I'm almost 53 years old. When I walk into my mom's house, she wants to know, are you hungry? Can I cook you anything? Can I make you anything? Can I do anything? Is that shirt dirty? Take it off. I'll, I'll wash it right now. That's my mom. Well, many of you saw the pictures of Joshua, me, my dad, and my brother eating gravy and biscuits at my mom. We had to work on the boat, and so we went over there, and my mom said, do you want something to eat? I said, you know what I do. She said, do you want me to cook you gravy and biscuits? I said, I do. So she cooks us gravy and biscuits. We eat them kind of weird. We put gravy and biscuits, a little bit of syrup on the side. We like to add sugar with everything. So you don't get this way looking this way with, with you know, gluten-free bread. <laughs> well, she makes us us gravy and biscuits. You know what one of the first things me and my brother do? We took a picture. You know why? Because we wanted to send it to my sister because she wasn't there. That's kind of the stir of the pot thing that James would do sometimes. Like he was just walking with Jesus, probably watching him do a miracle or something. And he, instead of him though, man, they just opened up blinded eyes. Lame guy just got up and walked. No, he goes in front of all of his friends, all of the other teammates and says, hey, who gets the best seat next to you? I want to be that guy. They, they go, oh, no, 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 no. I want to be that guy. He's just that guy that stirs the pot. Anybody ever have the spirit of stir the pot? Say amen. Well, if we were going to try to figure out the personality type of James, is see, he has, you know, when you look deeper, he has a prophetic edge to his voice. He's always calling things out. He's much like John the Baptist and Elijah. And I wanted to stop here before we dove off into James's spiritual impact and talking about his personality because I believe that the body of Christ once again has become consumed with how people feel. And I want to be the first one to tell you, I want you to enjoy service. I want you to enjoy the fellowship of other believers. I want you to know what it's like to come in and us sing one song with one voice. And those people that have the gifting to sing on tune have microphones and they cover up all all of us that don't necessarily hit every note and we get to act like we can sing and we sing together and it's one voice and we invite the presence of God. We want you to enjoy that. But I think that sometimes the church has gotten better at complaining because we don't have a prophetic voice anymore. 
and we want to blame things like the government and culture and everything else, it's because we got so consumed with you having a good time here because sometimes you need to feel conviction. We don't want you just to feel good with the intimacy of God. We want the intimacy of God to come in and as he gets closer, we see his holiness and the frailty of our humanity. And it makes us a little uncomfortable when we get convicted, right? It's not to produce guilt, it's to produce change. And so sometimes, don't we need, wouldn't you, I mean, sometimes we get so consumed with, I wonder if everybody liked it today. I even do it. We want to know how many people viewed online. We, you know, I, I get caught up in that. I'm, 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 I, I'm human. Yeah, that's the word I'm looking for. I almost said shallow, but, you know, either one of them will work. <laughs> you know, I wonder how many followers Elijah would have in today's church. I wonder how many followers somebody like John the Baptist would have. I wonder how popular he would be, and I wonder how full his church would be because these guys would call things out, even with people in authority and power. Like Elijah would just say, King, you're married to a wicked woman, and you guys are bringing idolatry to Israel, and God's going to judge you. Man, that don't feel good. Then you got John the Baptist. He's no better. He's talking to Herod. Hey, Herod, you're, you're in a romantic relationship with your brother's wife. Not smart, man. That's sin. You know what it did? It made both of the leaders mad. They wanted to kill him. And you say, well, how is John like that? Do you realize that John's the first martyr recorded in Scripture and he's executed by the order of Herod? Literally, the guy in charge said, man, this guy's stirring up so much stuff. I'd like to kill him. Now, do I want to be all hellfire and brimstone every single week? No, that's not the plan of God. But sometimes, don't we all need, myself included, a little bit of conviction that when we get in the car, go, that didn't feel good, but it was, it was the best thing for us, that we got in fellowship with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit revealed some things that we needed to remove from our life. And I feel like the weight of the world, I felt in the moment it was uncomfortable, like I was going through a surgery, and it wasn't actually fun, but at the end, it was productive. Don't we need that in the body of Christ? Amen. That's James. Because James is this guy that has the prophetic edge in his voice. He's the one that always sees the big picture. And he, that big picture produces passion. Now, we've talked enough about his personality. Let's talk about his spiritual impact. Here's one of the few places where James's life accumulates a number of scriptures and it's found in Luke chapter 9 verses 51 through 56. It says, when the days drew near for him, talking about Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations toward uh, Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James, oh, wait a minute, I skipped a whole verse. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And he turned and rebuked them and they went on to another village. 
See, what happens is passion in James starts to produce a thing called zeal. Zeal moves you into action. Zeal is that very thing that you think is a blessing, but if it does not have a partner, it could be a train wreck. You say, what are you talking about, Pastor? We're going to get back to the Scripture in just a moment. Let's talk about zeal alone for a moment. See, zeal is that passion that's unrestrained and it moves you to action. But when you start doing stuff without thinking, there's a problem. Like there's a partner that needs to walk alongside of zeal and it's called knowledge and wisdom. See, because your zeal, I'll give you an example. Um, I can use this in both categories because there was a time where I was young and I became zeal to my partnership with my dad. My dad was in vocational ministry. He was a senior pastor at a church. I was being called from an executive position within a chemical company. Now I'm going to go into vocational ministry. My dad is going to pay me $250 a week with no benefits. And I've got, he's got two grandkids in the mix. God's got a great sense of humor in my dad's retirement. He worked for me for a season. You know what I paid him? $250 a week and no benefits. But what God allowed is when we partnered at the infancy of our relationship in ministry, my zeal pushed my dad from a comfortable place uh, of routine. And it pushed him to see things a little bit different and try things that are a little bit different. And my zeal would push him from his position of comfort, but his wisdom would keep our, my zeal from killing us. Like in change. His wisdom would tell me, David, I know we need to change, but we need to do it one step at a time. That way, it's not that we have to change everything before next Sunday. Let's do it in a process and allow people to adjust and see the plan that God has. Because sometimes you need as much wisdom and knowledge as you need zeal. And so my zeal would push him to new heights. Now I'm the old guy on staff. What I used to be, I used to be considered contemporary. I liked contemporary music and I was pushing my dad past the, the position that he knew as a, an expression of worship. And now I've learned I'm traditional. And the younger men and women on our staff are pushing me. But you know what? I give them the same benefits. Their zeal keeps me from getting in a routine and a rut and staying in a position of comfort. And we try things. And you should never lead out of fear. Never. Even in your personal life. Even in your business. Don't threaten people that you're going to fire them. That's not a good motivator. Fear is not a good motivator. Lead by example. It's that moment where my dad allowed me to fail in my zeal to teach us things that gives an environment that allows zeal to be occupied with a partner of wisdom. Because see, when zeal doesn't have compassion, it sounds like cruelty. I'm going to say that again because it was good, Shell. Thank you for amening me. Zeal action, passion that's moved to zeal, zeal moved to action. If it's not tempered with compassion, it's cruelty. That's what you read in the scripture. You say, what do you mean James was cruel? Well, let's just break it down. They didn't let you come in their city. Let's call fire down and kill everybody. 
That sounds kind of cruel, doesn't it? I'm going to say that again. They didn't let you in? Let's just call fire down. Boom. Let's do away with all of them. That's zeal without a partner of compassion. Now, Jesus rebukes them and says, well, why don't we do the other solution? Let's just go to another city. Because you know what? That same region is going to have revival in Acts chapter 8. And if they would have all been consumed by fire, they would have never repented in Acts chapter 8. But why does James get so angry about these Samaritans? See, these Samaritans, they had some issues with the Jews. The Jews didn't like them, one, because of their ethnicity. They had been conquered by the Assyrians, and the Assyrians had married with the Jews, and they had produced a new people. They didn't like that. Inside of this new culture was paganism. And even if you go all the way back to the second book of Kings, the Assyrians, after they took the northern tribes captive and went back, they literally sent a priest back to teach them how to fear the Lord. But the problem with them coming and teaching them how to fear the Lord, they didn't remove the paganism. And that's what the woman at the well was talking about when we worship here and you worship there. See, God, as Pastor Matt so articulated in his announcement about oneness and grace, God wants you to know that his actions have produced an environment for the church not to have walls that separate us. I'm about, I've, been, I've been easing into this thing. I'm about to touch the throttle now. It is not God's plan for us to have the Baptist church and the Lutheran church and the Methodist church and the Church of God church. We're supposed to be the body of Christ. We have different expressions and we have diversities, but that should not divide us. There shouldn't be, you know, you say, well, pastor, see, James got so aggravated because Jesus made these people feel like he was for them. Like, you know, one of the first people he healed was a leper. You know what his ethnicity was? Samaritan. You know, out of 10 people that he healed on that day, only the Samaritan come back and gave him thanks and he, he, uh, Jesus acknowledged his gratitude above them all. Then he goes and decides, I'm not going to go around Samaria like other Jewish people do. I'm going to go through Samaria and I'm going to meet a woman at the well that's had five husbands and she's shacked up now. Because he is telling her, and, and Dr. Tony Evans in that oneness embrace, and when you sign up for it, you'll hear these words. I'm, I've stole them from him, so I'm giving him credit for them because it's the most beautiful example of preaching the woman at the well I've ever heard. Jesus wasn't just asking for a drink of water. He was saying, let me put my Jewish lips on your Samaritan cup. I've come for you to tear down every wall of division. There's not gonna be my children that are Jewish and my children that are this and my children that are that and my children there's coming a day where we will be all his children and Paul will reiterate it saying no Greek nor Jew male nor female bond or free Revelation 7 and 9 says the throne room of God is of every culture every ethnicity every tongue kindred and tribe they are of all different skin pigments and the body of Christ is supposed to reflect that Woo! let me preach somebody because God didn't, there is, I'm a, this, may, this may, some of you may never come back to Citygate. I understand that. 
because this may be revelation that shakes your whole theological world. There is not a Baptist section of heaven. There's not a Methodist section of heaven. There's not a Presbyterian section of heaven. There's not a Church of God section of heaven. There's not a white section of heaven. There's not a black section of heaven. There's not a Hispanic section of heaven. There's just heaven. And that's what Jesus was trying to get them to understand. And James caught hold of this thing. And then Jesus is going to tell a parable, one of his most famous parables. It's a parable about being a hero. It's called, Who's Your Neighbor? You know who the hero is in the parable of Who's Your Neighbor? Tell them, Miss Eileen. A Samaritan. That's why we call it the parable of the good Samaritan is that Jesus could have chosen anybody to be the hero, a Levite, a priest, a high priest, a Jew. But you know what? He chose a Samaritan. And James is now offended that Jesus has asked, he's going to Jerusalem, he wants to take a direct path through Samaria and he, Jesus tells a couple of his other disciples, go to Samaria and get us a place. And they say, no, we don't have no room for you. James becomes so angered by this, he tells them, let's just call fire down. Because Samaria is a region that had a history of fire being called down from heaven. Did you know that? You say, do tell, pastor. See, Ahab and Jezebel had a son. We know a couple things about this son. One, he's wicked. Two, he has no coordination. Because he's walking on the roof, falls through the lattice, and gets hurt. You know? So he decides he is going to see if he is going to recover. Instead of going to Elijah, the prophet of God, he's going to send a contingency of soldiers to find out if he's going to recover to the witches of the deity called Beelzebub, the Lord of the Flies, a, Palestine, uh, 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 a Philistine deity. Now, Originally, this deity was called Beelzebub, and the Jewish culture renamed him Beelzebub. Same one, Lord of the Flies. Well, the prophet cuts them off on their journey. And he said, why is the king sending somebody to go consult some witches? I'm a prophet. I'll tell him what's going to happen. He's going to die. Go tell him the good news. <laughs> Remember I told you about those prophets, they just say what God says, you know, kind of with that tone. You can play something softly. Eh? So the king says, they go back, tell the king, you're not going to get up out of the bed. Prophet said, you're going to die in bed. You're never going to recover. He gets mad. He said, well, I may die, but I'm going to kill him first. So he sends 50 soldiers to arrest this old prophet. Old prophet, now the palace of the king is in Samaria, by the way. So these contingency of 50 soldiers come and they're going to be arrogant. They're going to say, man of God, we come on orders of the king. We're going to arrest you. He's going to kill you. They messed up by calling him a man of God because he said, if I'm a man of God, let fire fall from heaven. And instantly 50 people, boof, vaporized by fire falling from heaven. King gets mad, sends 50 more. 
comes with the same arrogance. Man of God, I've been sent on behalf of the king. He wants to arrest you, then execute you, and then he's okay with dying. And he says, well, if I'm a man of God, let fire fall from heaven and consume you all. Instantly, 50 more, boof, gone. He didn't even learn the lesson then. He sends another one. This time he has a better leader. And he goes, hey, man of God, I know you can kill us because I had some buddies in the first hundred that was sent up here, and I'm not going to come with arrogance and pride. I'm going to say, hey, I had to come because the king would have killed me if I didn't come. But it's up to you whether you go with us. Will you go with us? And he says, of course I will. See what good leadership can do? Keeps 50 guys from getting burned up. So this region had been embraced by Jesus, now he's being rejected. This region knew about fire from heaven, and that's why James stands up with such passion. Lord, they're doing you an injustice. They're doing you wrong. Let's call fire down and kill them all. And Jesus rebukes him and says, James, your passion, move to zeal, needs to be accompanied by compassion. The answer is not killing them all. There's a revival coming in Acts that's going to transform this area. Our solution is just go to the next city. So let's fast forward to finding out how this James character dies. See, he's a part of the Acts 2 infillment and empowerment of the Holy Spirit to the saints of the early church. And that Holy Spirit empowerment not only takes the power of transformation that happens at, uh, at salvation, but now starts to discipline and temper that power of transformation in all of our lives, like not judging. You know, when you got saved, you, it was amazing how you could see the sin in everybody else. But when you were unsaved, you wanted them to see, not judge you. And you get so excited, you tell everybody in your family once you get saved that they're all going to hell. <laughs> That's not the way. It may be the truth, but that's not the way. So he is filled with the Holy Spirit, and it transforms him. He's going to be the first martyr. And this, I believe, with all of my heart, I've given my life to this document right here as being the infallible Word of God. I believe it's as relevant in the 21st century as it was when it was penned in the first. But when this Scripture gets validated by historians. See, Scripture says he was killed by the sword. But two historians give you the, de the details. One, his name is Esabus. And the other is Clement of Alexandria. And when they say the same thing, when two historians are validating the same sequence of events, and you can put that with Scripture, it is pretty valid. This is how they say James died. And Matt, you better be thankful because I really wanted to use you and Alex as an example. And then Alex was in youth and I had Clinton to back it up, but I decided against it because there was no dignified way to do this. James is being led to his death by a band of soldiers in chains. Conviction falls upon this band of soldiers. And one of the soldiers confesses as he's leading James to the chopping block. I'm a Christian also. Now, James did not lead him to Christ. 
He just felt in this moment he had to, he couldn't live another day without acknowledging his faith in Jesus. And if James was willing to go all the way to death, he was going to acknowledge, you know what it cost him? His life. Now, instead of having one person to execute, they now have two. They have the soldier and James. And when they get here, this is the thing I was going to make Alex and Matt participate in. Just picture, use your imagination, the soldier laying this way with at the edge of the stage is his neck to where when they behead him, his head's going to fall off. This is the soldier. They decide to kill him first. This is James. Remember the hard guy with the prophetic edge that wanted to call fire down from heaven to kill everybody? Historians say that he could not bear the thought of this man confessing his faith and him dying alone. So he rolls over and over and over until they are side by side. And it says James kissed him on the cheek and acknowledged to the executioner, let both of our heads fall at the same time. I don't want him to die alone. See, sometimes the church needs a prophetic edge that calls right from wrong. But in the zeal of, of the righteousness of God, we also have to have the compassion to change the hearts of men by the love of God kiss on the cheek the unwillingness for someone to die alone so I want you to think because James had to die for something what in your life means enough for you to die because sometimes we have to die for something but he was going to have a brother that had to live for something. See, a lot of times when life happens and somebody is passes, sometimes we get so angry at their passing that we forget about our purpose. See, James had to die for the faith. John had to live for the faith. We're going to talk about living for the faith next week. But I want you just to enter into a moment of worship where we may pray, God, let my passion turn into zeal and let my zeal be partnered with the wisdom, knowledge, and the compassion of the Holy Spirit to reveal your glory to the earth. I search the world but it couldn't fail me and that's empty praise and treasure the faith are never enough and then you came
Give the Lord an ovation of praise.
You know, sometimes we respond like James. And I know the world's a rough place right now. Pandemic, fires out west. The political landscape's a mess no matter what view you look at. The world seems to be crumbling. And if we're not careful, the people of God will say this, out of good intentions and passion and zeal, we'll say, Lord, come quickly. Take me to heaven. Well, who's going to be the light in the darkness when that happens? See, I've got people that, are, that I love that aren't saved yet. And I'm not praying, God, come get me and rescue me and let me find a place of comfort. I'm praying, I want to be like the compassionate James. I want to say, God, fill me with the Holy Spirit that allows the evidence of your righteousness and your compassion and your love to be evident to the people of the world. Oh, man, heaven's going to be great, but, man, I want to be used right now in troubling times. I want to be a, a, an example of righteousness that the world could look towards and say, oh, that's the church. There are people that do what they say. They're the people that believe in something and willing to die for something. They are going to live for something as well. That's the church. And sometimes maybe you're here. Would you bow your heads with me for just a moment? Maybe you've had experiences in the church and maybe church had great intentions, but you know, there's a difference between the truth and zeal without compassion and it comes off as being cruel. Maybe you tried church and you were wounded, bruised, or hurt. We're just here to kiss you on the cheek today and say, you know what? We want to respond with the love of God because yes, the judgment of God is real, but the scripture says he draws men by his love. It's the mercy of God. And you may be here that's bruised and sometimes we may have acted like that we're judging you and we're going to always say right is right and wrong is wrong. But your condition to God, he's going to, you know what? If you get saved today, he's going to accept you just like you are, no matter what you've done, how many times you've done it or who you've done it with. His love is going to overwhelm your unrighteousness. And so with every head bowed and every eye closed, we had three people this morning in first service join the family of God. Now, what it means to get saved, it means that you are more than sorry. What you're going to do is identify that I am a sinner in need of a Savior and that Jesus is the only one that could have possibly paid a price and done what only He could do. He died on a cross, shed His blood, that He could redeem mankind and then had the authority to resurrect from the dead so you and I could have life. He loves you so much that he doesn't matter where you come from to this moment. It is at this moment he is going to love you to receive you, not as people that get to go to heaven, but actually as family. You're going to become the sons and daughters of the Most High. But he loves you so much he refuses to leave you in your present condition. So that means when we repent, we turn from our own ways and we start following with passion after him. And the transformational power of salvation takes you from that old man and you become a new man 
in the sight of God, and then the empowerment and the infillment of the Holy Spirit helps seal you. And that sanctification becomes a process. What's going to happen after you raise your hand, after you pray, you're probably going to mess up before next week. God loves you anyway. Sometimes it's just time to come home. Sometimes you just need to hear that there's people, the people of God that want to love you with the love of God that changes a person's heart. So if you're here today and you want to set aside the, the, the heaviness of your guilt, shame, or sin, it is at this moment that the power of salvation can reconcile you into the family of God. Nobody's looking around and, and we have, all we want to do is not judge, we want, to, we want to celebrate. But if you want to get saved today, will you raise your hand high? I got my glasses today. Yes, thank you. Hands are going up right now. There's three. How many more? If you want to get saved, just rate four. Any more? Five up in the balcony. Thank you. Any more? Okay, you can put your hands down. Now everybody open their eyes. We have at least five, maybe more. What we're going to do right now is we're going to pray. We can't pray for you, but we can sure pray with you. Because you getting saved is not actually you repeating a prayer. You getting saved is you acknowledge that you need a Savior. And you're asking Jesus to come be that Savior and forgive you of your sins. And you're going to release your will and start living for His will. That's as simple as it gets. Let's pray together. Father, right now, as we saw at least five people raise their hand, it is at this moment that God, that the power of the gospel, the power of your blood, the authority of your resurrection, your love has rescued, has searched out, and has created this moment, that at this moment, as people are saying, Jesus, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I am the one that is guilty, but you are perfect. And you are now accepting me into your, not only your kingdom, but now into your family. I give you praise and honor for God. I remember the day that I raised my hand. I remember when it was me asking you to forgive me. And Father, even after that moment, there's been times this week I've had to ask you to forgive me. And you know what? I've always remained a son because you're a good, loving father that moved me to a place that shapes me with your love and you develop my character through your discipline. And I give you the praise and the honor and the glory in Jesus' name. And everybody said... Amen. Let's do what heaven's doing. Let's rejoice.